beloved, two favorite vacation destinations, uh, certainly of me, and I think of many people as well, are the mountains or the oceans. I'm also two places of adventure, of fun and excitement. Uh, yet, as by very much of their nature, things can turn on a dime. What uh, might for a moment be a great adventure, a fun time, can turn to disaster. One rope can break, one boat can fail, and there can be a pressing disaster. Uh, one ancient mariner, when you think of the oceans, one ancient mariner described his sudden turn towards a maritime disaster. He wrote these words. He said, Before very long there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Eurekilo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. And running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the boat under control. And after they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship. And fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Syrtis, they let down the sea anchor and so let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands and since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. You see, that ancient mariner realized that things had turned, and he needed help. His shipmates needed help in a time of great need. And this was written about 2,000 years ago by the mariner was the good Dr. Luke. And you'll read those words in Acts 27, verses 14 through 20. Beloved, we all need, whether we're on a mountain, whether we're on the sea, all days of our life, we need help in times of need. We need pressing continual help, and especially there are times and moments that press in hard on us. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Our passage this morning are verses 14 through 16. And what we have here is the author is picking up a theme that he brought out all the way back in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 of Hebrews. The author wrote, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren, speaking of the Son, speaking of Jesus, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And the author picks up there in chapter 2 verse 17 a main theme of this entire sermonic epistle. The high priestly ministry of Jesus on your behalf and my behalf. He mentions Jesus as high priest again in chapter 3 verse 1. And what he's doing here in verse 14 of chapter 4 is he's picking up the theme that he had started back in chapter 2 17 in that there was an interruption. In chapter 3 verse 7 he interrupted his thought of the high priestly ministry of Jesus to bring out for us and to point us to an example of the faithlessness of the nation of Israel that came out of the Exodus and their tremendous failure in the wilderness where their corpses scattered the wilderness because of their disobedience, because of their unbelief. And he broke out and interrupted his flow of thought 
of this great high priest that we have in Christ with that example. And now he is picking it up again. And see, the situation is, man, you and I, all of us, every human, man in his rebellion has indeed turned his back on God. History and certainly contemporary circumstances confront us with the fact that however we may slice it, whatever our opinion may be, man is not as God intended man to be, nor designed man to be. Our circumstances are flawed. Our character is impoverished, and our lives are out of sync. The, we are out of sync with our family members, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, because at times, because at times we are out of sync with one another at best and always at worst, because we are out of sync with the Creator God who made us. That is the problem. And so, What the author does here is he begins a next major section in chapter 4, verse 14, that runs through the end of chapter 7, the high priestly ministry of Jesus. As we've been going through Hebrews, we saw that the author opened up with a comparison of the Son and that he is infinitely superior to the prophets of old, that he is the final and certain full word of God in the Son. And he makes a comparison of Jesus with the angels and that he is infinitely superior to the created beings who are angels. He compares the Son to Moses. The Son is the perfect apostle and high priest joined together. He is superior to Moses. He is superior to Joshua, chapter 3, verse 8. And here he begins what will be a comparison with Aaron, which we'll pick up in chapter 5, I think around verse 8, where the high priestly ministry of Jesus is infinitely superior to the old covenant priesthood with Aaron as the figurehead. And what Martin Luther wrote is he is talking about this transition that we go from verse 13 to verse 14. If you're here last week, in verse 12, it's the penetrating power of the word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and able to pierce to the very division of bone and marrow and of soul and of spirit. And the eyes of God, in verse 13, are searching to and fro, and they see us in all of our openness. And God, the God who is the judge of all men and women, is the one with whom we have to do. Well, the author takes a turn as we go to what we have here in verse 14. And Martin Luther said this. He said, after terrifying us, the author now comforts us. After pouring alcohol into our wounds, Luther wrote. And, of course, alcohol in the womb is necessary for sanitation. But Luther says, after pouring alcohol into our wounds for sanitation, God is now pouring oil into our wounds to soothe us and as a bombing. Beloved, listen to the word of God in verses 14 through 16. We read, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. 
Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. This is, these verses are present help in a time of need, in times of trouble. Now, just to kind of have an outline here, we have, we're going to have two words to kind of bracket these verses. Two words, transcendence and Imminence, two theological words. The, the word transcendence, both words describe the attributes, perfections, or two different attributes, two different perfections of God. Transcendence describes the fact that God is other, his holiness. He is completely separate from his creation and completely independent of his creation. He is outside of his creation and not limited to it or by it. That is God's transcendence. God's imminence, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E, describes the fact that even though God is transcendent and outside and infinitely above all of his creation, at the same time, he is permanently, continually pervading and sustaining the universe. We've even seen that earlier in Hebrews about part of the ministry of the Son is he upholds the very existence of the universe. He sustains the universe. He is continually present and actively operating within his creation. And what God is doing here in these three verses is he's describing the ministry of the Son in the context of both the transcendence and the imminence. Verse 14 and then verses 15 and 16. And beloved, the intent here is that you and I would be constant worshipers within the veil. In the very presence of God in heaven, even as we are gathering together here this morning. We Remember, in the context, the author is talking to a group of Jewish Christians. And many of the original audience are considering and thinking about throwing the towel in, spiritually speaking. They're facing severe oppression, even from their ethnic brothers and sisters. And they're faint-hearted and weak-kneed. And the author wants them to be encouraged to hold fast. And as, especially as Jewish Christians, this original audience understands what it means to have a priest. They know what a high priest looks like. And what the author is telling them and what God is telling you and me is we have, you have a priest not just on earth, you have a priest right now interceding for you, ministering on your behalf in heaven in the true tabernacle of God so that, beloved, you and I would not drift away, so that we would not shrink back and that you and I would hold fast lest we fall greatly. We would hold fast our confession. So first, the transcendence of God, which is borne out in the transcendence of the Son. And also what we have in both of these points is we have a cause and effect. We have two causes and two effects. The first cause and effect in verse 14 is his infinite supremacy encourages us to hold fast our confession. The second cause and effect in verses 15 and 16 is his intimate sympathy encourages us to draw near with confidence. So first, the first cause at the beginning of verse 14 is his infinite supremacy. The infinite supremacy of the Son, which again we've already seen rehearsed in different ways up to this point. And beloved, what God wanted the original audience to understand and what he wants you and I to understand is right 
now as I preach, right now as you and I breathe, there is a great priesthood being exercised in heaven. There is worship right now in heaven that is joined together with our corporate worship. Our corporate worship in our local body is joined together with the corporate worship of every Bible-believing church here in Gilbert and in Phoenix and Arizona and around the world and with the worship in heaven. Look at how the author begins, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest. One little Greek word translated as since then. We could also translate it as therefore. It's drawing our mind back. It's cast against the backdrop of the fearsome nature of the penetrating power of the word of God in verse 12 and the penetrating gaze of God in verse 13. And he says, since then, we, the author, brings himself together, in fact, with the audience. Uh, This isn't the author pontificating from some rarefied atmosphere, from some ivory tower. This is the author putting himself on the same level with the body of Christ, with the audience. In fact, we see that in these three verses. We, us, our, we, our, us. Beloved brother and sister, we are in this together. We have, right here, right now, a great high priest. Now, High priests were prominent through Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, in Gospels, in the Gospels, and in Acts. But there's only one great high priest, literally one mega high priest, and that is exactly what is stated here in the Greek. He is our mega high priest, our great high priest. And When the author brings this out here, he is again connecting this back with what we read earlier in chapter 2, verse 17. The author is continuing his exposition of the priestly ministry of Jesus and his exposition of the humanity of Jesus that was brought out in vivid language back in verse 17. And this is a main theme of this entire letter and one in which God would have you and I anchor our soul, anchor the hope of our soul on this truth. As we would consider the high priest of Israel, one of the jobs, one of the responsibilities, one of the ministries of the high priest in the nation of Israel that on one day of the year, once A year, on the great day of atonement, the high priest would go and pass through the veil into the holy of holies. That was the foundation, the comparison. But what the author is telling you and I now is we have a great high priest, look at the text, who has passed through the heavens. So not only did Jesus ascend from earth into the presence of God, seated at the right hand of God, but in so doing, in his ascension, he completely transcended all limits of time and space. Even the wonderful doxology, the first song that we sang, the king, we praise the king, his throne transcends. That's precisely what the author here is bringing out. And the grammar even, when he says he's passed through the heavens, the original grammar, and by the way, I'm so encouraged, I understood Raymond, it was like 35 students in the, in the Greek class, something like that. What a blessing that God is giving Santan Bible Church here with the uh, professor of Greek that's going on. But I digress. But the grammar that he uses right here basically says that when he passed through the heavens, that is a completed Fulfilled act, but with continuing ramifications, applications, meaning, encouragement, hope 
exhortation for you and for me. And this isn't something brand new with the author of uh, Hebrews. Uh, Paul, when he wrote to the church in Ephesus, chapter 1, verse 20, speaking of God the Father raising up the man, Jesus the Son, Ephesians 1, 20, he, God the Father, raised him, Jesus the man, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Or Ephesians 4, verse 10, he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. But here in verse 14, see how the author describes the Son. He says, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, his humanity, the Son of God, his divinity. And he leads with Jesus because the author is emphasizing that it is a human who passed through the heavens. The very same Jesus who was born at Bethlehem. The very same Jesus that walked in the dust of the promised land. And the same man, Jesus, who died at Calvary is the man, is the human that has passed through the heavens. Beloved. Jesus carried his humanity into heaven. There is a heart in heaven right now that's beating with a human heart, the man Jesus. That is his humanity, Jesus, the Son of God, his divinity, truly man and truly God. Two natures, one person. As human, he's one with man. As divine, he is one with God. And the point the author is bringing here, and he'll continue to expand upon in this letter, is that it is not a mere earthly tabernacle that this ministry is taking place. It's a heavenly tabernacle. It's a true tabernacle. I'll look over to chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. The author there writes, Now the main point, in fact, chapter 8, verse 1 is kind of a summary verse. If you wanted one summary verse of Hebrews, that would be a good one. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Watch this, verse 2. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Or chapter 9, verse 24. Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God, watch this, now to appear in the presence of God at the end of verse 24, for us. Beloved, he is the seated king, he is the sitting ruler, and he is the interceding mediator, the faithful intercessor on behalf of you and of me. And that's the great, deep theological doctrine that is born out of Chapter 4, verse 14, that God gives to you and me by way of encouragement, by way of exhortation for all times and in the hour of our greatest need. Beloved, dear friend, Jesus didn't just go through a giant curtain ripped in half. Uh, it was massively important and massively symbolic when that giant curtain in Herod's temple was rent asunder, ripped in two from top to bottom. What that symbolized in terms of sinful men and women being able to go directly to God. But as wonderful as that symbol is, the substance is always vastly greater than the symbol. And Jesus didn't just go through this giant curtain ripped in half, which symbolized 
symbolized the presence of God. He passed through the very heavens themselves in his humanity into the very presence of God. And, and because he joined us to himself, he carries us with him into God's presence as, in a sense, passengers in Christ. That's why, going back again to Ephesians, Paul speaks even in present tense. There's an already not yet aspect of this. We have an experiential right now already understanding of what this means. And there is a not yet portion which will be fulfilled when we enter into glory. Ephesians 2.6, the apostle Paul says, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is part of the beauty and the power of what it means for you and I to be new creatures in Christ Jesus right now and what awaits us as we sang in one of the other beautiful songs this morning when we enter into paradise, when our faith becomes sight, when our hope is realized, when our love is perfected, even as it has been just this last week for our brother Luis. And by way of application, if you still have your thumbs open to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, he says, the author says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and watch this, and one which enters within the veil. Beloved, dear brother and sister, worship within the veil. That's what awaits you forever and ever. That's what you experience. You and I experience right here, right now, together as a corporate local body and individually. In the morning when we rise early and open up the word of God and study and have God speak to us with the gift of God speaking to us, as we saw in Hebrews 4, 12, and 13, and when we speak back to God in prayer as we are even seeing now, and especially we'll see in verses 15 and 16. That is the cause, his infinite supremacy. The effect is his infinite supremacy encourages us to hold fast our confession. Beloved, simply put, we have already right now, therefore we hold. We are commanded to hold. Look at what it says at the end of verse 14. Let us hold fast our confession. Now the word hold fast literally means be strong, powerful, possess power, seize, grip, cling to. In Hebrews 6 verse 18, the author uses the same word saying, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. But what he talks about is hope in verse 6 through 18, he says confession here, homologeo. Literally one word, the same word. I should say the same, not one word, literally same word. The same word as God has spoken to us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. You'll read in chapter 10, verse 23. So the command here is to hold fast our confession. Now, when we think of our confession, it is both inwardly held and outwardly professed. It is both faith in the heart and faith in the mouth, or faith on the tongue, if you will. And let me put it this way, for example. If you are a farmer and you're going to, when we used to meet at Gilbert Christian Schools in Agritopia, it was kind of fun. We had a built-in location with you know, agricultural symbolism that we could at least by name bring into the sermon. But if you're a farmer, you understand to reap a harvest, you can't do that while sitting on your derriere at the kitchen table. 
You have to go out into the field. Well, when we think of that, we can think of our Lord Jesus Christ on earth in his ministry and his life. One commentator counted 132 contacts. You could probably come up with different count number, but that's a pretty good approximation. But this one commentator counted 132 contacts, evangelistic contacts, connections Jesus had in the Gospels. Of those, six were in the temple, four were in the synagogue, and 122 were with people in the mainstream of life. So, beloved, we are commanded by God to gather together, to come in in our corporate worship. We are commanded to, chapter 10, Hebrews, not forsake our assembling as is the habit of some. That is absolutely essential part of biblical Christianity. That's why we praise God for streaming, for when somebody in the family is sick or when you're traveling. And even during the eight weeks that we didn't meet, which won't happen again, but even during the eight weeks we didn't meet, so we praise God for that. But streaming is not a substitute for the gathering together and the body life and the face-to-face fellowship and the encouragement of one another. But that is the in-gathering. We gather in and we are strengthened so that we go out and we bring the good news. That is the outward profession of our confession. Howard Hendricks The pastor and commentator said, and he said this several decades ago, in the midst of a generation screaming for answers, Christians are stuttering. Now, that doesn't mean you have to have some perfect articulation of the faith. That doesn't mean you have to use words like transcendence and imminence. Beloved, dear friend, young man, young woman, if you know enough of the gospel to be saved, you know enough of the gospel to give it away. Hold fast. Hold fast our confession, and hold forth your confession to a lost and dying world. Beloved, that is the glorious application in verse 14 of the transcendence of God as reflected in the Son, Jesus Christ. Secondly, his imminence. So we saw that his infinite supremacy encourages us to hold fast our confession. Now in verses 15 and 16, we see his intimate sympathy encourages us to draw near with confidence. So the cause is his intimate sympathy. And simply put, Jesus, the Son of God, knows everything we want and everything we need. Now watch this. As God, he knows everything we want. In his humanity, he experientially knows everything we need. That is the beautiful reality of the one man, the one person, I should say one person, Jesus, with two natures, 100% God, and now on this side of the incarnation, 100% man. He knows everything we want and everything we need, and unlike me at least, he knows the difference. Very often, I don't know the difference between what I want and what I need, but God does, Jesus does. Look at verse 15, he says, for... So he's connecting this with the transcendence and what we saw in verse 14. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, if you're an English teacher, Grandma Mary, and you might say, well, that's a double negative. And and yeah, well, if God wants to violate human rules of grammar, so be it. But actually, in the Greek language, and even in the Hebrew, double negatives were allowable. If we want to make it a complete positive, we do have a high priest who can sympathize with our 
weaknesses. Sympathize, sympatheo. We actually get the English word sympathize and sympathy from this Greek word sympatheo. It only appears two places in the New Testament here in chapter 10, verse 34. And understand the sympathy, the sympatheo the author is talking about here is not pity for a group of people from afar. We may see the tragedy and the travails and the horror that befall other people on the news or locally, and we may have pity on them, rightly so. But that's not the kind of sympathy the author's talking about here. He's talking about the sympathy of one who is being with us and one who is feeling with us as one of us. That is what the author wants us to understand. And it is picking up directly from what we read before, chapter 2, verse 17. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. Beloved, dear brother and sister, the Son, Jesus, our great high priest, became like us so that we might become like him. Now, having said this, having read this, one might have the reasonable and logical question, well, Can he really sympathize with me? I mean, I'm about half of us here are women. He was a man. I mean, can he he really sympathize with what I go through as a woman? You might be a married man. Well, Jesus was single. So can he really sympathize with me as a married man? Now, what the author does, he gives a built-in answer. He says, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. Now look at this. This is the answer. But... One who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted. And the temptation of Jesus was sweeping in all things. It was similar as we are, and it was sinless, yet without sin. And beloved, what God is communicating to you and me is Jesus, as a man, experienced real weaknesses and real temptations. And in fact, he was tempted like no one's ever been tempted before or since. I mean, we might think, can the sinless God-man really sympathize with me? I mean, was he really tempted? And understand this, he was tempted at degrees and levels with an intensity that you and I couldn't even begin to imagine. He felt the full force of temptation far beyond anything you and I could imagine or even endure. Now, to help us understand this, let me tell you how temptation works with an illustration. Think of a a little tug of war with two people. We could take my beautiful little niece, Aria Miller, and maybe have her friend, Ari Teasy, two toddlers, give a little rope to him and say, okay, hold on to this, and we could have a little tug of war, and it wouldn't take too much pulling to win that. Or we could go to Viviana Whitney and Emma Eli, an 8-year-old and a 10-year-old. Okay, you have a little more resistance, but okay, we can still pull that out. Or maybe Scott Mom and I, so two men, we can hold on to it. Or we can have Zach Miller and Kingsley Sorge, and you need seven or eight men to get them. Okay, but you know, eventually that will go. But now, here's the point. Take the end of that rope and affix that to a solid granite wall. And you can pull, you can pull, doesn't budge an inch until finally the rope is snapped. 
Beloved, that is a perfect illustration of Christ. You or I, in our frailty and weakness, even as we grow in Christ, our resistance against temptation grows. And our mortification of deeds of the flesh and our victory over specific temptations grow in frequency. And we praise God for that. But still, on the side of glory, again, in our frailty and weaknesses, there are different levels of our resistance against sin before we give in. But Jesus Christ didn't budge one inch. He didn't budge one nanometer, one atometer. So, sorry, you can put the engineer in the pulpit, but I guess you can't get the engineer completely out in the pulpit. Beloved, the point, I just back on track here. Beloved, the point is Jesus, the man in his humanity, he passed through stresses and strains no other man or no other human or woman ever knew. He was tempted directly by Satan. He was tempted by circumstances that were far more intense, infinitely more in his perfect sinless humanity than you and I could imagine. The temptations came to him with far greater intensity than to us whose minds and wills have weakened because of failure. And his point here is Jesus endured triumphantly over every form of testing without any weakening of faith or any relaxation of his obedience. Never once did he permit the temptation to become sin in his heart, in his thoughts, or in his actions. He never yielded until the full force was spent, until the rope of temptation snapped every single time on the outside and on the inside. Beloved, the point here is you have a mediator. You have a priest interceding right now in heaven on your behalf who experienced the whole force of the battle, one who suffered the full pull of temptation. And look at the text, verse 15. It reads, yet without sin. Literally, without sin. Now, depending on your translation, my translation, the little word yet there is in italics, which is an indication it wasn't part of the original text. It was added by the translators. And in this case, I think that yet, that italicized yet, actually isn't helpful because that almost implies that there's a necessary correlation between temptation and sin. And what God is communicating here is the son, Jesus, was tempted to the full force of temptation. He passed through the path of temptation with an utter absence of any sin, without sin, period. And it helps us understand this as well. In his perfect, infinite sympathy, his infinite, I should say, capacity for sympathy for each and every one of us, no matter our gender, no matter our background, no matter our situation, it was not his experience of sin that enabled him to sympathize, but rather his experience of being tempted to the utter limits that enables him to sympathize with you and with me. And just kind of a side human application that came to my heart and mind in thinking of this is very often many Christians have the misperception that if you want to minister to someone who is ensnared by a certain stream of sin, the best ministry to that person would come from someone that has recovered for that kind of sin. For example, if you want to minister to a drunkard, the best person to minister is a recovered drunkard. That's not so. Now, you could have a recovered drunkard that could have a wonderful ministry to drunkards. I can think of an example when I was overseeing the outreach department. 
at Grace Community Church in Southern California, one of the 17 local outreach ministries we had was a jail outreach ministry. And the deacon we had over the jail outreach ministry is a man that about 15 years before had been in jail, had been ministered to and evangelized by the very same ministry. God saved him. He was discharged from prison. He came, started attending, faithfully growing in the grace and knowledge of God, and became deacon qualified and was the one that was leading the jail outreach ministry. So you can have something like that, but it is wrong to think you have to have someone in that who has recovered or beaten that sin to minister in that regard. Uh, not in the case of sin, but the Apostle Paul, who was single, it seems to me he had a pretty good ministry to married people, for example. But back on our text here, our weaknesses. He sympathizes with your weaknesses. And this tells us as well, this without sin tells us that our weaknesses are not necessarily synonymous with Sins, But these frailties, we know, can become occasions for sin. And there are also opportunities for the power of God and the triumph of grace. That's why in verse 18 of chapter 2, since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he's also able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Beloved, In our day-to-day temptations and trials, Jesus sympathizes with us in our weaknesses at every level. And listen, your king has become your brother. Your judge has become your savior. Your king has become your brother. Your judge has become your savior. And this, beloved, is what we need in our hour and moment of need. And really what we need every day, every moment of every Day, especially when our weaknesses seem overwhelming. This is what we must hold fast. So that is the second cause, his infinite sympathy, which finally encourages us with the second effect, to draw near to God with confidence. Look at verse 16. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Again, part of the common theme that runs through the whole book. Chapter 7, verse 25, if you want to turn over a couple pages. Speaking of Jesus, of course, he is able to save forever. The old covenant priests couldn't even save for a time. I mean, in a sense, there was a certain measure that they would do that as part of the God-ordained ceremony. But he, the new covenant great high priest, is able to save forever since he always lives to make intercession for them, for his children, for you and for me. Chapter 10, verse 22. Another exhortation. Same words, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Or the seminal verse, chapter 11, verse 6, he who comes to God must believe what? Must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder for those who seek him. And it's the exact same Greek words translated as comes to God as draw near that we have here in chapter 4, verse 16. And as we continue reading back in 4.16, draw near, not just draw near, but draw near with confidence, with boldness, with courage, with freedom, with a fearless confidence. We fear God 
And we are to fear nothing else. And when we fear God, we have a fearless confidence to come by God's grace and mercy into his presence. And this confidence approaching God is even the beginning of the major application. In Hebrews, in the whole letter, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 10, verse 18, is where the author has the great accent on the doctrine, of course, interspersed with application. But chapter 10, verse 19 through the end of chapter 13 is where the author shifts and points more towards application. In chapter 10, verse 19, you'll read these words. Since, therefore, brethren... We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now, as we consider this exhortation in chapter 4 and the coming one in chapter 10 of drawing near with confidence to God, we may be reminded that God is a holy God. And even as there are so many Old Testament references in Hebrews, we might think of, for example, Mount Sinai, the holy mountain. And the nation of Israel was told that other than Moses who went up, none of them could come and even touch the mountain. If even one of their animals would touch the mountain, it would be struck dead. Or we can think of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat which covered the Ark of the Covenant. And people couldn't come. No one was to touch it. Only appointed Levites were even supposed to carry it with poles. And we don't want to be like Uzzah, who was carrying it in an inappropriate fashion, and it tipped to fall over, and then he didn't want the ark to fall on the ground, so he touched it, zap, he's dead. But now we read the words, draw near, and draw near with confidence. What changed? Beloved, what changed is at the heartbeat of the ministry of Christ. The old covenant priest could only be a shadow and foreshadow. The new covenant great high priest is the substance he fulfills it. And what this means is that while each of us are an individual work in process, we are desiring to grow in sanctification and grow in the grace and knowledge of God, we understand that there are no degrees of acceptance for the child, for the son or daughter of God to draw near with confidence. Every believer... Beloved, is fully received according to the finished, complete, sufficient work of Christ. And it is the throne of grace. When you think of the throne, the throne of a king is inherently unapproachable. But this throne is the throne of grace. It's approachable. This is, in a sense, the mercy seat. This is the judgment seat of God, where for the believer, it's a judgment of praise. For the unbeliever, it's a judgment of wrath. So there is, at this throne, either immeasurable grace, which is what is being brought out here, or there is terrible judgment. Beloved, the throne of grace... For those whose sins are forgiven of Christ is not a frowning, rejecting, judging throne. It's a smiling, receiving, pardoning throne. That's what God is communicating to you and to me with these choice words. And no one in the human, a human king, a a citizen, even an esteemed citizen, can't just barge in on the king and slap him on the shoulder and say, hey, let me tell you about something. No, he had to be welcomed by the king and very often we see this in the old testament the king would stretch out his scepter to allow someone to come that's what esther did with ahasuerus for example and what we see here is the king of kings stretches out his scepter to every son and daughter of god and says come and it's not come it's come come to receive 
mercy, to receive grace. Draw near with confidence. And dear friend, if you're not in Christ, if you're not trusting in Christ alone, by faith alone, understand this, that the gospel message, salvation, is not just a prevention policy. It's not a get-out-of-hell ticket. There is, to be sure, a negative warning of judgment and wrath. And there is a positive exhortation and offering of mercy and grace. That's why you see, look at the end of verse 16. So that, hina, purpose, so that we may receive mercy and may find grace. We may receive the mercy that's right there and we may seek the grace that is there to be found. Westcott, the 19th century English commentator, said this, quote, Man needs mercy for past failure and grace for present and future work. He continues, mercy is to be taken, that's what we receive, as it is extended to man in his weakness. Grace is to be sought, that's the find, by man according to his necessity. That we may receive mercy and may find grace finally, look at, at the very end, to help in time of need. The Greek word translated as help is quite fascinating. It's a nautical term. Now, you don't find many nautical illustrations and analogies in the Bible because Israel was a land. God promised Israel land, not a sea. But there are occasional ones. We saw one earlier in Hebrews. But it's fascinating here, the word help describes supporting cables that would undergird a ship. And in fact, when we read that ancient maritime disaster from the ancient mariner, good Dr. Luke, in Acts 27, verses 14 through 20, in verse 17, Luke writes, after they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship. Same word translated as help in Hebrews 4, 16, is the supporting cables in 27, verse 17. Beloved, we are a needy people. And it's Christ's business in heaven. His ministry in heaven is your great high priest to see your needs supplied and your trials and temptations met. And he gives you help at the right moment in your hour of need. The help may be material, it may be emotional, may be physical, may be spiritual, but understand this, whatever God's answer to your hour of need, your time of need is, it will be that situation will be met with comforting, healing, and need-meeting power of Christ. Beloved, God's plan is that you and I would habitually come to the throne of grace. And this isn't anything new. David, Psalm 55, evening and morning and at noon I will complain and murmur and he'll hear my voice. Psalm 119, verse 62, at midnight I will rise up and give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. Beloved, this is the gift of God. Verses 12 through 13, that's the gift of God where God speaks to you. Verses 14 through 16 is God's gift to you where you and I speak to him. And we don't have to have perfectly, again, articulated prayers. Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, said, God can pick sense, God can extract sense even out of confused prayer. But let us excel yet more in our prayers, not with the language that we use, per se, but with the fervor, with the intensity, with the desire, with the frequency. Daniel 
Burham, who is the main architect of Chicago, he said this, and this was purely at a secular temporal level, but it reflects excellence. This is what he said, quote, Make no little plans. They have no magic to stir men's blood and probably themselves will not be realized. Make big plans. Aim high in hope and work. Remembering that a noble logical diagram once recorded will never die. But long after we are gone will be a living thing asserting itself with ever-growing insistency. End quote. Again, good words of excellence at the human level. But for us as believers, let us do everything we do with excellence for the glory of God. Pray fervently. The fervent prayers of a righteous man or righteous woman accomplish much. Beloved, are you a constant worshiper within the veil? It's not, it's not a magic trick. Those who don't fall away, those who don't drift away, those who don't pull back, those who don't yield to the little tug of temptation are those who hold fast and hold forth. They are simply put, those who listen to God speak daily and those who speak to God daily in quiet time, in couple time, in individual time, in family time, in corporate time. Beloved, please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. Thank you for what you have done and what you are doing right now and what you will do. We praise you and thank you that even as we consider our departed loved ones who have gone into your presence, we know that that is what awaits us. And we praise you and thank you that we can experience that right here, right now, as we worship within the veil from this side of eternity, from even earth itself. Be glorified, Lord God, in all that we do. And Lord God, for anyone that is here this morning listening or watching even later that aren't truly trusting in you alone by faith alone, we pray, Lord, you would penetrate their hearts with the imperishable seed of your truth and you would have life where there was no life before spring forth and bear much fruit for your glory, for their joy, and for the furthering of the harvest. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we sing. Amen.